I spent my college days throwing perfect passes and trash-talking BYU. And I spent my college career smashing Utah Utes' faces into the mud. I'm Jason Buck. And I'm Scott Mitchell. After our careers in the NFL, we still talk trash. But mostly to each other on our podcast, Rivals. We talk all things football, college, and NFL. A little bit about life and growing up rivals. Download it each week wherever you get your podcasts or on the KSL Sports app. Go Cougs! And go Utes! I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. Today on the show, we've got a repeat with Craig Hatkoff. We're happy to have Craig back. And uh, this time he's brought Erwin Kula with him. It is about fundamentally, if you want to get, at least for me, getting something done in the world is not doing it on my own. It's figuring out and, and finding people who want to collaborate. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really... Uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let them become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper. But uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all. So I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, so totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co, and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. So um, to begin with, let's start with Erwin. Erwin, for, for folks who haven't seen your Big Think or they haven't read your books, um, can you give people a little bit about your uh, your career your background getting to this point uh yeah sure i uh i'm an eighth generation rabbi and i run a think tank at the intersection of innovation religion and the science of human flourishing and that's just a fancy way of saying i get up every morning uh eager to reimagine how religion can function for the public good and how the job that religion is really supposed to get done for people how does it get it done uh, more effectively, more efficiently. Actually, these days, how does it get the job done uh, altogether? That's great. And and for people who don't know the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership, can you give us just a little bit of background on it? Yeah, so it was founded in 1974 by uh, Nobel Prize winner Elie Wiesel and, and by a man named Irving Greenberg. And it was designed initially to help um, reimagine how Judaism could function uh, in the freedom and, and opportunity and, and affluence and, and power of, of the American experience. Uh, so it was 
mostly functioning in the American Jewish landscape. And over the last 15 years, I became, I became president somewhere about 12 years ago, uh, shifted the organization to think more broadly about how religion should function in general as we move to, you can call it post-industrial, information age, technological age, post-modern age, whatever the, the words work, but there's some new iteration of what it means to be human and, and what it means to be in community and what it means to be a nation and a country and where does religion fit in and how can it contribute in a healthy uh, rather than a toxic way. And that's what we do. So we work with religious leadership. We work with universities on research projects on, on does religion work? Um, how, how do you measure the impact and effect of religion on people's character, on people's psychological and emotional uh, and ethical development? Uh, we have a bunch of communication vehicles um, and, um, and then work around uh, the ecosystem uh, both business, technology, education, wherever values, ethics, a certain certain elevating of consciousness is important, which is actually everywhere these days. <laughs> yeah, well, and you've you've got the radio show, and you've done the TV series, and and such well known books. Oh, you know, try every any way we could possibly communicate. That's <laughs> that's the fun thing about this moment. Also, there's a lot of permission, and there's yeah. a lot of playfulness in which we can bring our wares you know, our wisdom wears to the table, whatever business we're in. Yeah. Well, we're going to, we're going to give Craig a minute to, to talk about, you know, co-founding Tribeca and a real estate background and this kind of stuff. But just before we do, you know, you've worked with the Dalai Lama and Queen Noor and, and these major leaders. What was it about Craig Hatkoff that you wanted to work together with him? Oh gosh. You're talking about like, I have five younger brothers and, and Craig is my older brother by just a little bit. So, uh, first, you know, Things start because there's a there's some sort of incredible chemistry. So let's start with intellectual chemistry. I mean, it's weird because Craig's on the phone, but Craig is a genuine Renaissance character. So he um, he knows a hell of a lot about a hell of a lot of areas. So that's one. Two, I have never met anybody who who synthesizes and synergizes between different domains um, better than Craig. Uh, and so just on the intellectual, psychological level, um, you know, he's been very formative for me in my life. And then on top of it, he's a very, very loyal human being and friend uh, with great integrity. So if you put all that stuff together, uh, it's not hard to I feel very blessed that, you know, I consider him one of my best, 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 best friends. Oh, that's great. Well, Craig, let, let's turn the tables here. Let's, for, for folks who maybe they missed the previous episode where we had you on, I'd love to do the same thing. Have you covered a little bit about what you've been doing in life to this point? And then, and then also let's go for that same question about what it was about Erwin that you wanted to get him involved. All right. Well, all I can say is, Erwin, after your very generous introduction, it's all downhill for me from here. So <laughs> I'll do the best I can. Um, so just a quick uh, snapshot. It's a little difficult to say exactly what I do. But I do a lot of we can do a list. We're fine with lists. We can talk about best-selling authors and real estate mogul and, you know. Well, maybe the result of all this is we can help me figure out what it is I do and I can then tell people. <laughs> but I guess let me break it down just very quickly. I spent after business school at Columbia, I graduated in 1978, went on to spend 11 years at what was then the chemical bank, uh, the old chemical bank, which then merged in and 
four of the big uh, money center banks all ended up under one roof. But I thought I'd be there for a year. And as things turned out, it was a very interesting time to be in banking. After, but after a point in time, it was, it was just that moment to do something different. And I left uh, with a partner who I'd been running the real estate uh, operations uh, for you know, investment and merchant banking. And we set up our own boutique that uh, ended up partnering with a fellow by the name of Sam Zell, uh, we talk about disruption and innovation. Uh, Sam is one of the great disruptors out there. But by 2000, a couple things happened. Um, and I'll, I'll try and make this sort of fit in. I started, um, I, I met Clay Christensen in 2000 and won't go into the whole background. But after 45 minutes, sitting in a classroom sort of by myself with Clay on a, on a whiteboard, and he explained his theory it was that aha moment, the epip- epiphany of everything that I thought I knew and the way I looked at the world was completely upside down. So I'll kind of leave it at that. It was a very provocative meeting. Separately, so I started off on a relationship with Clay, independent of Irwin. At roughly the same time, I met Irwin at a dinner party where I knew he was a rabbi. Um, I had not had many close relationships with rabbis. <laughs> Uh, in fact, this was really the first personal relationship I had ever had with a rabbi. And at that first dinner where we're sitting next to each other, we're talking about everything under the sun except religion, which I thought was very cool. So we, so those two things kind of took their own paths uh, to right about 2007, where out of the blue, I said to Erwin, I'm not sure why I'm giving you this book, The Innovator's Dilemma. But I think you should take a read because you read everything and at least you should be aware of what this is. And then back to Erwin's version, um, he stayed up all night. He read the book and he said, now I know what I've done. This is really, you know, I- I'm energized to really take this to the next. I don't know where this is going, but wow, this is really interesting stuff. So by 2000, like a couple months afterwards, we find ourselves sitting up at the Harvard Business School uh, faculty dining room with Clay, um, because I had just found out the Clay I did not know for the first seven years of his religious affiliation as uh, both Mormon and then elder for New England and Canada. And it kind of led to this uh, intersection of my world with Erwin, a rabbi, and then my world with Clay as really initially as a business thinker, the mo- one of the most influential business thinkers of the of the century, I'll, I'll just use that since we're being generous in our descriptions. And we ended up sort of weaving this tapestry, the journey where we're all, the three of us are sitting there at the Harvard Business School fact, faculty lounge, starting to integrate and synthesize these different domains. And so by 2009, we kind of had spent a couple of years with Clay and we decided it was time to look at taking Clay's body of work which has traditionally been in what I'll, what you would think of as the, call them the traditional areas of innovation, invention, very technology-oriented. In fact, the original name for disruptive innovation was originally considered called disruptive technologies, and that itself evolved over time. But what Clay was really interested in and what Erwin was interested in, and by definition, I tend to be interested in a lot of things, even though I'm not particularly religious, uh, and Erwin can opine on that, Um, we ended up 
with the Tribeca Disruptive Innovation Awards that launched in 2010. And in the first year, it was basically 65 people in a screening room. And in fact, that first year, we were honoring Clay Christensen with our Lifetime Achievement Award. We had a couple of guys, one of whom you probably have heard of, Jack Dorsey, was one of our honorees, along with another fellow, uh, Jared Cohn, who was known as the uh, Twitter kid at the State Department. Uh, Michi Kakatani from the New York Times, the revered book reviewer, uh, Ashton Kutcher, who Skyped in at a time when Skype, well, it's very funny that we weren't able to get Skype to work today with <laughs> Google Hangouts, but that's what I thought it would be like. But, you know, on the button, the phone rings, and on a big screen, there's Ashton Kutcher Skyping in to, to accept his award. Um, and so it was kind of people like that, but it started to evolve, and I want to kind of kick it back to Irwin. Uh, but let me just throw in one another example. We had a fellow that some people might remember. They're still very, very popular, but there was a high school music teacher out in Staten Island uh, whose name is Greg Breinberg, who runs something called the PS22 Chorus. And he was one of our honorees. And I can't remember which year it was, but not too long after, he was able to take his chorus and they closed the Academy Awards uh, singing some, uh, I think it was somewhere under the rainbow. So we kind of, kind of try and find things about innovation that are probably a little bit less expected and find something where there is that aha moment or why did you have Clay Christensen or what was it about Jack Dorsey? And ironically, um, we actually have the footage, which I obviously can't share on, a, on an iPod, but we can maybe direct people. Of uh, It was the, the week before Jack was launching a product called Square. And all Jack <laughs> was known for at the time was, you know, the founder of Twitter. And the idea was very, very interesting. Clay had not been aware of it. And, you know, Jack Dorsey all of a sudden was in two domains. He was kind of trying to disrupt the payments market and had already done a pretty good job on the, you know, on the Twitter side. So what is that aha moment and what can we learn from these things? Our sponsor for this episode of Innovation and Leadership is Skillshare. If you're not familiar with them, they're an online learning platform with over 18,000 classes on business and marketing and entrepreneurship and technology and, and lots of other classes too, illustration, things, other things I'm interested in. Um, they've given us a special offer where for listeners of our show, you can get two months for just 99 cents where you can see all these 18,000 classes, unlimited access. It's uh, skillshare.com slash leader. And I think what I like about them most is their high quality classes that are from high credibility instructors, you know, content marketing right from Contently. Or the one I took was uh, last was email marketing right from MailChimp, where you know, these are folks who are obviously seeing millions of other people's email marketing campaigns go out so they they really are kind of a high credibility source of information so again it's skillshare.com slash leader 99 cents for com complete access to all their courses for the next two months uh one last time skillshare.com slash l-e-a-d-e-r thanks yeah well um when we talked last time you had not gone to hiroshima yet can you talk about that yeah, and then, you know, and Erwin, feel free to jump in, and I, I, I want to try not to speak in full paragraphs or uh, in, in pages. And, and the simple version is, by a chance encounter, 
um, I met an artist by the name of Canon Hersey and I hadn't looked up what he had done. I, I meet a lot of people along the way and I went to meet him. And as the conversation unfolded, I said to him, you know, I read this book in high school called Hiroshima by John Hersey. You're not related to him by any chance. And he said, yes, that's my grandfather. And I've been doing these projects in Hiroshima and boy, it would be interesting to bring together what you're doing in with the disruptor wards and what we're doing in Hiroshima. And it was one of those, another one of those aha moments where I probably spoke too quickly. I said, you know what? I would love to do this. I'm sure Erwin is going to love it. I know Clay would love this kind of thing. And eight weeks later or thereabouts, we found ourselves in Hiroshima doing our awards with Canon Hersey. But the awards in Hiroshima, you know, when we talk about non-traditional domains, the awards were all about resilience. And Erwin, let me throw it to you so I don't get into my monologue routine. <laughs> no, I think that, look, Hiroshima, anybody who's been there, you can feel from the moment that you get there that, that something unprecedented happened there. Um, in many ways, our capacity, our technological capacity was ahead of our humanity, as as Einstein says. And so when you think about innovation and the life affirmation that's at the core and the faith and trust and hope that the world could be different at the core of innovation, it made sense and I and to wow, let's let's see if we could do a disruptor awards in, in Hiroshima. And and the theme was um, resilience, the affirmation of life, and also a sort of very significant uh, recognition that Hiroshima is one of the central global pla global places for peacemaking. And we need a lot of innovation and a lot of disruptive innovation in peacemaking these days, because the people who are responsible for trying to make peace, um, clearly we need some new methods. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So putting all that together, the resilience that is so much a part of Hiroshima, which is characterized in, in look, almost every building is post-1945 post within the ground zero area. So even that is remarkable. The resilience of the population, the innovation of uh, the innovation that is Hiroshima. Um, and then you add uh, the resilience of nature itself, which you can feel there in the survivor trees, which Craig will talk about. And 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 the um, and just the the fundamental ability to affirm life there and and you know what can be more important than have innovation awards you know it works perfectly. And, and, and let me just throw in one little I don't know if I'll call this an anecdote or an observation. I'm sure there are people out there listening and saying, "Wait, they're calling it Hiroshima, not Hiroshima." Yeah, right. That unto itself is the kind of thing that both Laura and I get very passionate about. Um, and to me, I went to Cannon, who's the grandson of the guy who wrote, you know, probably the most famous non-Japanese person that's ever been to Japan, and said, do you call it Hiroshima or Hiroshima? And he said, nah, it's Hiroshima. So we're going with Hiroshima. <laughs> so, you know, it's like I have a book that was about Cecil the Lion, which I, I can't remember we talked about it on the last show. And everybody says, is it Cecil or Cecil? So these are the kind of cultural, doesn't seem significant, but boy, when you start peeling away the layers and looking under the hood, how you pronounce something, 
you know, the impact or the import of a color, these are things that probably don't fall onto the radar screen of, you know, most people, but it's the kind of stuff where and I, you know, we'll, we'll spend two weeks talking about pronunciation. <laughs> so, um, and I guess, you know, I just wanted to put that in there because I, some people will say, boy, are you sure he went there because he's pronouncing it wrong? So <laughs> you take a stand and you say, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, without going into too much detail, and maybe we can come back with you on another episode, really drill down because it was is quite fascinating. One of the things we learned very quickly as this started to unfold in New York City, you know, at the end of the summer um, they have 160 trees in Hiroshima that survived the atomic bomb, and they're literally called the survivor trees. And the metaphor, the image, and the fact that you're going to see these trees, that the sides of the trees facing the bomb are still today pretty gnarled, but the rest of the tree, you know, has come back to sort of full bloom. And so that whole metaphor of the survivor trees in Hiroshima led us to kind of take a look at, you know, under our own hood in New York city, given September 11th. And I think we, I'm sure we talked about it the last time, Jess, the Tribeca film festival was a response to September 11th. So it's kind of in, you know, my DNA at this point. And there happens to be one survivor tree uh, that survived the attacks on the world trade center. Uh, it's a cattle repair tree. And giving you the conclusion without all the, uh, you know, the journey to get there, we basically, while we were there, we were able to initiate an exchange of, sur of survivor trees between Hiroshima and uh, New York. And while wow. the trees haven't been delivered, it's, you know, it, it's a lot more complicated than it sounds. As I can't you just bring a paper bag and bring the little sapling over. It doesn't quite work that way. You know, we're dealing with the Department of Agriculture. It, it's, it's a complicated process, but that metaphor of tying together two cities rooted not only in tragedy and trauma, but if you take a look, even what the, the festival was one small part, but probably one of the earliest, the resilience of New York City after this incredible trauma and the resilience of Hiroshima, that kind of became the connective tissue for us. Well, and can we talk about this for a minute? You know, I would love to hear Craig um, your talks with Robert De Niro getting that going, and then maybe Erwin, we can have you talking about Clayton Christensen. You know, there's so many folks listening to this that, that want to have an impact on the world, possibly, and they're thinking, man, you know who I'd like to connect with and do something with? Um, you know, you guys have got such formidable people to, you know, besides being formidable people yourself, you, you've really attracted tier one talent to do these kind of things with you. Um, Craig, do you want to talk for a minute about De Niro and, and Erwin, do you want to talk for a minute about Clay? Yeah, you know, it's funny. It, it's, I don't know if we attract people or we like, you know, kind of, there's a, there's a sort of random collisions that happen in life. And there's a serendipity that, that if you're really curious, and I think curiosity is, is probably one of the most important qualities right now, because curiosity implies that you can say, I don't know. I don't understand that. I don't get that, but I really want to try to understand it. That that I think that that may be one of the most important qualities now. And I don't mean it in some new age way. If you think all of a sudden somebody with power and influence and smart will will come into your orbit. I mean it that that curiosity has its own trajectory. 
when you're really curious. I don't care if you're online and you're and you're and you go searching and surfing and to to follow footnotes and to follow ideas and or you do that with people who you meet in an airport or a book that you read and you are so curious you have to pick up the phone and say you know I, you, you may not talk to me I'm a no one but like I would really like to talk to you about for ten minutes and that's how it's done. So I want to say that it's no magic there. It's it's are you like crazy curious about the world and about other people and about ideas and crazy curious is a muscle and it's a skill. So I want to say that first regarding your first question. And then in terms of clay, we, that's, I mean, I traded on, on, on Craig's relationship and then followed up. But, but, you know, I didn't sit down and meet with him until I had read like everything he had written until I could actually be smart in the conversation and, and, and then good people want smart conversation. So that's how it is about fundamentally, if you want to get, at least for me, getting something done in the world is not doing it on my own. It's figuring out and, and finding people who want to collaborate. And, and that is a, that's a mindset, right? And it's not, it's not something that you like, you read in a book and say, oh, I'm supposed to be a collaborator. No, it's a mindset to collaborate and it's a mindset and a skill set to be curious. And, and with Clay, what happened was, you know, he was open as he is. Uh, I think we were open. And for him, the biggest thing is to be able to say to us, like, you're not, he could have thrown us out and say, what do you mean applying my theory in a way that is not exactly uh, 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 university business school you know, disciplined. What do you mean you're taking it as a metaphor and applying it to domains? Instead, he's curious because he said, I never thought of it that. I never thought of that. And go do it. So the encouragement becomes a piece of the relationship also. And and then what happens is you begin to use a lens like Clay's lens, and it opens up like any lens. You see different things, but it doesn't have to be his lens. It could be you You do leadership and innovation. That's just putting those two things together. There's a lot of different forms of leadership. There's, there's organizational leadership. There's adaptive leadership. There's so many different lenses of leadership. And if you care about it, you try to look at all the, use all these lenses. And what happens when you put new lenses on? You go, oh, my God. I ne-, and I say that, no pun implied as a rabbi. Oh, my God. You know, wow. I never saw that before. And that's, that's how people, how are we talking? Right. I mean, what's the chance of, of, of you from Salt Lake City and and me, some upper west side liberal rabbi Jew? Like what? what how does that happen? It happens because your curiosity produces its own path. I love that. Uh, Craig, thinking about these things that Erwin just brought up, curiosity, being prepared for the conversation, being open. I mean, do you see similarities in 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 the work of getting Tribeca going? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a multi-part question, and I'll just try and give a quick answer. You know, to talk about, you know, you asked me about Robert De Niro. Let me just give the 30-second version and then kind of bring it back to Tribeca. I met Bob when I was uh, basically still a, a second-year uh, business student graduating in that May in 1978. So when I say I've known Bob for 40 years, it's literally going on 40 years. Um, and... 
it started off, Bob was really interested, it's always been and is still interested in real estate. And I was going into the real estate business per se. And I, as it turned out, and I'll just kind of leave it at this, our common connector was the first loft developer down in Tribeca, who unfortunately just passed away. His name was Chuck Lowe, who Bob had a close relationship. I had gone to a business school with Chuck's son, who was partners with his father. And so this very strange, you know, in my life, I probably, in business school, I probably didn't even know who Robert De Niro was at the beginning. But then by the time you get to something like Raging Bull or Taxi Driver or even going back, wow, this guy, you know, this is not what I think, what I thought a movie star would be like. He's incredibly curious. I don't think there is any human that's maybe on the planet, forget about the entertainment industry, Bob is known basically when he's going to do Raging Bull, he's going to spend six months with Jake LaMotta, he's going to gain 50 pounds to do the movie, he gets into character. And when Bob gets into character, it's, you know, unlike anything anybody's seen. And so, you know, fast forwarding it, um, you know, and I started helping uh, Jane, my, my currently my wife, and Bob, um, just as sort of an informal advisor on real estate before the real Tribeca had emerged. When I first met Bob, um, it was in a loft. I, I won't use the address, but it was the top floor of a building downtown. And all it had in it was a boxing ring. And it's where he'd been training for uh, Raging Bull. But when it was time after September 11th, um, the question is, what do you do? And Bob really understood that, you know, he is considered the unofficial mayor of New York City. He can actually walk wherever he wants in New York City, and people don't bother him. I mean, it's very unusual. But after September 11th, the question is, what can you do? And, you know, we'll talk about it more in depth and maybe on another segment, of you, should you invite us back. <laughs> um, but we had had a dinner, very small dinner, and I think it was October 2001, Right after the, you know, September, about a month later, had a dinner in Little Italy, and there were only two parties in all of Little Italy. And all you saw were uh, waiters and uh, restaurant owners standing in their, you know, on their doorstoops looking for customers, and there were none around. And that was actually, it was called Dinner Downtown, flowed from that, and from Dinner Downtown, which happened, I think, in November 2001, it started giving people a reason to come back downtown. And from that, you could feel it. We said, gee, you know, could a film festival, now Bob and Jane, Jane Rosenthal, had always thought about doing a film festival, but there was never a compelling reason. Now, all of a sudden, if a film festival could get people down to the streets of lower Manhattan, that was that was a good reason. And so the whole idea wasn't really to start, you know, a now we're going into our 17 year. We thought this would be a one shot deal. We got a few thousand people, but you know, at least there'd be some activity, but Bob, you know, is, is, is very passionate, very civic minded. Um, we won't get into politics today, but he has very strong views on certain politicians. Uh, I'll leave it at that. But, but you know, Bob is, is central to it. And when we got up to announce the film festival, uh, we had the governor, we had Whoopi Goldberg, we had Meryl Streep, and the real point is we didn't really have anything else in place other than a saying, we're going to make this happen. There were no films, there were no venues, there was no money, no sponsors. 
And Bob actually was asked the question, well, what's it going to be? And Bob said, you know, in a certain humility, he goes, I don't know what it's going to be. And we're going to make mistakes and it's not going to be perfect. But what I can tell you, whatever it is we do, it's going to end up being great. And with that, it sort of said, okay, well, that's the call to action. And we spent the last 17 years in a very involving environment of how the festival uh, came to life. And then, as we mentioned before, in 2010, this platform really is not, you know, Bob's not involved per se in the uh, Disruptor Foundation or the awards, um, but then Clay came in. So that's just an example of how the evolution of these things, you just don't know where you're going. So I think of, you know, my life, certainly with Tribeca, with Irwin, <clears throat> it's about, you know, people, it sounds trite, but often there's a reason things are trite because it works. It explains things. It's just been one long series of journeys. Yeah. Well, I, I think we need, you know, I think it's a good spot to end for part one of the episode. We'll make everybody have a cliffhanger and, uh, and wait for part yeah. two, but, uh, this is great. Everybody, make sure to turn into the next episode. We're going to hear more about the foundation. We're going to talk more about uh, the role of curiosity in, in disruptive innovation. And uh, appreciate you guys making time for this here today. Terrific. Thanks. All right. Thanks for having us. Okay. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about, if you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or four hundred million dollars. Anyways, he uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard uh, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run and it just puts so much power in the hands of of marketers and ceos who want to try something and see if it works you can buy as many or as few as you want change it as many times as you want uh, i think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors we're pretty excited about it hope you check out blipbillboards.com thanks Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold cut combo. Veggie delight. Or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Oh, yes, sir! Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.